and you know, it's amazing how much time you can lose. And I learned in NASCAR, just the click of the button can cost you a tenth of a second. You know, I remember sitting in the stands one year at, um, uh, I think it was the Thunderdome, actually, yeah, mm-hmm. sitting up there all by myself. I've got a photo of it somewhere. And um, I was just sitting down looking over the track and thinking to myself, like, how can I just be a tenth of a second faster? Like, you can't even think that fast. You know what I mean? When you yeah. take one second and divide it into ten, you yeah. think you can't even think that that fast. And yet I could I could go around there, lap after lap after lap within a tenth of a second, mm. right? And um, I think I'd broken the track record and had more poles than anybody ever had. Mm. So I pretty much felt that I was getting the most out of the car. I needed to get more out of myself. And when I was looking down there and I was thinking about it, and I thought about every hump, every bump there is on the racetrack. I thought, you know what, the only thing I reckon I can do is try to lift a little bit later. We would like to thank our major sponsor, Thrifty Car Rental. If you're looking for a great deal on your next car rental for an upcoming trip, check out their website for the latest offers. You can find all the links in our show notes. Go, go, go! Are you doing it? He's in! That's a massive crash! And it's happened immediately! This is amazing! Big shot, big shot! G'day, I'm Dan Hooley-Hollihan and welcome to my motorsports podcast up on the couch with Hooley season two, which is more than just a motorsports podcast. My guests are from all sides of the track, eras and personalities. You will meet some who have spent their careers chasing the dream to those who have only just touched on it and went on to aspiring journeys. We learn their stories beyond the helmet. On today's episode, we've got the infamous George Elliott. In my opinion, this bloke has to be one of the most interesting characters our sport has ever seen. Known for his high-octane lifestyle, George lives life on the edge. Growing up on the outskirts of Sydney, he's done everything from making a movie to becoming a best-selling author, flying helicopters, and also winning the 1992 Australian NASCAR Championship. Brooke and myself are extremely excited to share our in-depth chat with George to wrap up the season. Anyway, that's enough chit-chat from me, so let's hear it from the man himself, George Elliott. <laughs> Straight out there, man. I got yeah. I had to tear myself away this morning, and, and, and first mornings are always hard, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I think they'll be right. Yeah, lucky. See, we've, we've got nearly all, um, it's nearly corporates today anyway. Is it? It's a big corporate day, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it'll be... They'll cruise through that. And Luffy's away as well, which sort of made it a little bit harder. He won't be there till Friday or something. Yeah. Friday night. I'm sure they'll make it happen. So who's the second in charge when Luffy goes away? Only you, um, is it your son? Mate, yeah, my son Graham. Well, yeah. Graham's the CEO of the company now. He, he bought into the company and he's – because, I don't, mate, I don't want to run big business anymore. I don't want that shit. I don't want to do it. I just want to turn up, put a crash helmet on my head. Go and give people a good time, a yeah. bit of fun, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but, I mean, they'll say that, but I've still got to make a lot of calls behind the scenes and sort of oversee a lot of things. Yeah. But, um, you know, the biz- and the business has got – so big and so busy. Mm. I mean, we did 400 people a day at Bathurst. That was 400? Massive. Yeah. Holy and shit. our average out at, even at, at uh, Sydney Motorsport Park, we're, we're doing 300, 340 people a day. Holy shit. And does that all come through like Red Balloon and stuff? No, probably they do, I think, about 40% of our business, our Red Balloon and, uh, and Adrenaline. Yep. But it, we're doing about probably about 60% of it comes through our own marketing now. Yeah, okay. Because uh, um, Greg, who I've, I'm trying to introduce you to, yeah, he's taken over all of the marketing. Yep. 
Red Balloon and uh, and Adrenaline uh, do a lot of their own marketing, but they they've got so much product, man, it's not funny. Yeah. So trying to get to you know, trying to get everything in front of them is hard work. Mm. But um, yeah, but I mean, we've turned it a lot because once Greg came on, he he was the I think he was head of marketing for Coca-Cola or something 20 years ago. All right. So he's, he's a pretty good marketer. He, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. So I just step right back out of all of that stuff and go, like, you do that. Yeah. And Graham's like a – he's got double law degrees and all sorts of shit. Yeah. I'm just a race car driver. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So what do you – you just pretty much step back in a way and just – Well, from the like, business side of it, I try to step back a little bit, yeah. Yeah. And my job doesn't really start till I put the crash helmet on my head, you know, and, yeah. uh, and take care of the drivers – and you know the other side of pit pit wall, basically, you know. Um, but anything as far as the business and that, yeah, I pretty much leave that to uh, to Graham and to Greek now. Yeah, right. Suits well, me fine, you know. Yeah, and that deal with the sports cars that was just random, didn't didn't it? Um, which one were the uh, TA two cars? You mean? I'm not the TA two, like the um the sports cars with the business of V8 race. Is that is that is that, uh, is, that is that with V8 race or is that like a separate no, it's, business that uh, you bought yeah, into? You, you talk about the Ferraris and the um, Lamborghinis that yeah. we just bought. Yeah, we just bought a bunch of Lambos and Ferraris. But it's, it's No, it's all through V8 race and it's just going to be a different division, that's all. Yeah. We've always sort of – we're always looking for what's next, you know, because mm. um, I think you've got to try and freshen things up a little bit every now and again. We've been doing the same old shit for 20 years. Yeah. And, you know, we've got a, you know, we've got a list of people there probably – I don't know, 200,000 customers, mm. and it would just be nice to be able to promote something a little bit different to them. So it was actually Graham's idea to do that. Yeah. Uh, so we went ahead and, and bought a whole bunch of cars, and I think we kick it off in March. Yeah. We've only just started to tell people about it, and there's a lot of interest, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But, yeah, but that's that's Graham's uh, – that's his brainchild. And oh, I'm, so that's, that's your son's brainchild? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. it, was, it was his idea. Yeah. Uh, he just ran it past me and said, what do you think? I said, yeah, knock yourself out. Go for it <laughs> so we went and bought, I think, three Ferraris and three Lambos and a couple of, I don't know what else we bought, to be honest, a couple of other yeah. Italian cars of some sort. Because Brooke was, Brooke was selling that to her parents. She's like, Dan might get involved in driving those sports cars eventually. You should, mate. You'd love it. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I was going to say, Dan, these eyes light up. Like, I get to touch yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, well, when you when you meet Graham and have a chat to him, he's, um, you know, he's the one who's appointing drivers for it. It's not even not so much drivers, but you get in there and go for a ride. Yeah. It's, it's more, it's not a high speed like the V8s are. Mm. V8s are full on, you yeah. know. But the Ferraris and the Lambos and that is more an experience. Mm. It's a given people opportunity to come along and, and, and drive a, you know, an yeah. exotic car. Yeah. But you still get up to a pretty good lick. I mean, you're still on a race car, still on a racetrack, mm. um, but you don't need a crash helmet and you don't need driving suits. It's all about just the experience of driving the cars yeah, as right. opposed to the, the V8s. And then with the V8s, I mean, I, I gave up um, – well, I, I say I gave up coaching, but now and again I'll coach somebody that really wants to learn. Mm. In a road car or just in general? No, no, in, in the race car. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll see what it's like once you come out and have a look. But you know what? You'll be doing sitting in the passenger side and coaching people around, talking yeah. to them all the way. 
uh, your mouth's the best tool you got to keep yourself safe because while you're talking to them, they're listening. They're not thinking for themselves. Yeah. Last <laughs> thing in the world you want to think is, is them <laughs> thinking for themselves, mate, let me tell you. Because I was literally saying to Luffy on the phone, he was like, because I got a fair idea because I did a bit of Aussie driver okay. coaching and oh, stuff yeah, like right. that. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I'm pretty sure what, what I can gather is you just put into fourth gear and just make sure they go through the response. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, not quite. He's still telling them when to change gears. Yeah. So he basically tell them, you know, lift now, brake now, change now, turn in now, feed the gas in now. Yeah. Tell them everything that you know yourself. And yep. you'd be surprised how much it actually helps. I say a lot of the, long guys, the young guys that come through and coach for us now, it's amazing how much it helps them in their racing because what you're doing is you're verbalising what you already know in your head. Yeah. And then when you get back in the car yourself and you're racing, it all comes a lot more natural and it's, um, it helps enormously. And they'll all come back and tell you the same thing. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool as far as doing that. I mean, I just do hot laps now. Um, everybody wants to be a hot lap driver till you become a hot lap driver because it's fucking hard work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting in a race car for like, you know, seven or eight hours a day sometimes and sweltering heat, just going full noise. And, you, and I've got to remember, you know what, my last customer of the day yeah. deserves just as good a ride as yeah. the first one because – it's his one and only shot at the title. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got to make sure he gets a good shot at it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but still, you know what, I, I mean, I love it. I love the people. That's what keeps me coming back all the time Yeah, is the, the people I'm involved with, you know. I mean, it's, it's great to be able to give somebody the opportunity to experience, um, you know, what I've experienced my whole life is uh, it's pretty cool, you know. I'm pretty uh, – I'm pretty happy with that. That's good. Yeah. Are we rolling? Oh, we are. Oh, we're rolling. Oh, we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, I'm glad well, we didn't start talking about yeah, shooting people. Oh, no. Holy <laughs> shit. That, that'll, that'll actually be part of the podcast. But oh, mate, that was- Dan had a whole heap of questions around that, and I think that was answered in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got to tell you, the worst one ever was Dougie Mulray, who was a mate of mine. And yeah. he, he, a bit like you, Dan, he hounded me to get me on Triple M with him. And I said, mate. Get somebody interesting, George. <laughs> really, you know. Yeah. So anyway, he goes, "Come on, it's only me. Just yeah. let's just sit down and have a chat." He said, "I promise, we'll make it comfortable." And the very first question out of his mouth was, "So, George, you recently had a gunfight and you shot a bloke. How did that work out? Was that good?" <laughs> oh, <come on>. uh, <laughs> so you think that didn't catch me off guard? You know? <laughs> we, we, we did read about this and wanted to ask yeah. about this later because I was like, "Was it in a movie or was it real?" Yeah, <laughs> that was a real one. I don't any realer than that. I was, I was saying, I was saying to Brooke, I was like, this this podcast has to be the last one because you've just done so much shit. Do you know what I mean? That's like, what I said to you, man. I'm serious. You'd have to do like five sessions to cover all the shit that I've done. You know I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about flying choppers and you got it. It's a great regime. That's why we can't wait to get stuck into it. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. we've been so, through it all. Watched every video. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. The, so the closest you've done to a podcast is with Doug Melrose. I'm guessing like you haven't actually done like a podcast. Like no, I've never done a podcast ever. Yeah, I right. mean, you know, I don't know whether you've seen all the other stuff that's out there. I mean. Um, Kerry Ann Kenley did a great one. I yep. yeah. saw that. We one. saw that. Yeah, that was really cool. I nearly you drove about, it in. I nearly <laughs> killed about forty. Um, <laughs> the blue rinse set just about wiped out the whole scene. <laughs> the blue rinse set. Uh, that was pretty cool, but it got him exciting. Yeah. I got him excited. Yeah, and I mean, you know, sixty minutes did a full uh, did a full show on me, and um, Australian Story did a pretty good. Yeah, they did a pretty yeah. good job. But you know, it's funny. And again, you go back to talking about the movie and the uh, the politics behind it. The Australian story producers were actually told to try to make a mockery out of me. What? Right? Yeah, what? they really were. They, yeah. they were going, yeah, just poke fun at this bloke who does he think he is type thing. 
Yeah. Once they got to know me, we got started, they got right behind it a million percent. Yeah. And the producer actually said to me, George Fenningham, he said, I want this to be the best show ever because this is just the coolest thing I've ever been involved in. Mm. And, uh, you know, he said, we were we were put onto this to try and sort of, yeah, just make a bit of fun of you, really. Yeah. But he said, once we got started, it was awesome. So that's pretty cool. And, and you know what? Most people get to know after a while that I'm nothing special, just an ordinary guy that's having getting out there and having a shot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, George, cool. normally I do like an intro, which they were here on the other end of the podcast before, but I thought I'd mix this up a bit and do it like a bit of a 90s style. So I actually, okay. I've got like an intro to intru- introduce you to your own podcast. Do whatever you want. So to do, check mate. this shit out. I actually wrote a little, <laughs> little, little podcast intro. All right. So, George, I'm sure you've got many, many stories to tell before we get into the show. Before we do, it feels like we're doing these days of our lives type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> we are just letting our listeners know that we will take a trip down memory lane with George, just like a movie. And along the way, the episode will learn many, many lessons. This episode will learn many, many lessons and get to know George's life advice on everything from motorsports to flying planes, writing novels and making movies, and apparently even being a gangster. (laughs) George, this is your life. (laughs) That's pretty cool, Dan. Thanks for that. You you make me sound bigger than life, but actually not really. And before we start, let's just make it really clear because I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Yeah. Um, I've actually never shot anybody that didn't need shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I cannot I know. wait to hear this story. <laughs> <laughs> I have to read the books to pick up on that one. Yeah, yeah. But those, like, yeah, you originally, though, as we were, we were talking, Brooke and yeah. I, myself, and we are doing your research on you, grew up in La Perouse, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, I was a, a little Scottish import uh, when I was four years old mm. and uh, got put straight into a, an Aboriginal school out there at La Perouse. Yeah. So I didn't have a great education because um, nobody could understand me. I spoke broad Scottish and all the other kids, most of them uh, Aboriginal kids who, you know, I don't want to get into that thing. I don't, I don't yeah. understand all the black and white stuff anymore because it does, makes no sense to me. Yeah. I've got some great mates and I made fantastic friends out there, but – Mainly the teachers, it was, they couldn't understand what I was saying, and I couldn't understand what they were saying. So mm. it was uh, that made it difficult. And the, and the uh, in fact, the headmaster actually christened me Professor Professor Dingbat, mm. and my job was to go out and pick up papers and you know, clean the playground. Basically, that was pretty much my whole education in uh, in a little school out there at La Perouse. So how, how big was the school though? Was it like was it like a hundred people? Or was it smaller? probably about a hundred people? I think yeah, it wasn't it wasn't really big. I mean, it was a pretty small area out there. Nowadays, it's expanded as everything has. But um, mm. in those days, yeah, it was a fairly fairly small school. Yeah, and um, I think the. I think basically the only two things I learned out of school was how to fight and play football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was about it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I went through uh, primary school out there at La Perouse and then in those days, I don't know how it is now, but I think now, well, in those days you had to go to the school you were allocated to go to to, to go to high school, right? Yeah. And I was allocated to go to uh, Matural High School. The problem was the school wasn't built. So basically what they did was a whole group of us that were supposed to go there uh, was sent off to some other school that didn't really have a, a teacher or a, or a classroom for us. Well, I found a classroom. We sort of hung out in there and snuck across the road and played the pinball machines yeah. for the first year of high school. Um, and then when Matterville High was built and ready for us, it was kind of my first first taste of real school was second year of high school. And 
I sat there and looked at lessons. They had no idea what it was all about, no, yeah. no clue. So I basically just sweated it out until I was 14 and nine months old, which was when you were allowed to leave school, providing you had the, um, you know, providing you had advice from a uh, from an expert. Mm. I forget what they called them then days, but anyway, I had to go and sit down with this guy. And he said, "So George, what do you want to do if you leave school? You want to leave now? What do you want to do?" And I didn't really know; I had no idea. But I'd been watching them build Long Bay Jail across the road, and watched all the bricklayers, and I knew half the guys that were inside actually. Yeah. But I said to him, "Look, you know, I know I got to tell him something that he wanted to hear." So I said, "Yeah, I want to be a bricklayer." He said, son, you haven't got the brains to be a bricklayer. The best thing you can do is go get a job as a labourer on a building site somewhere. And uh, that's it. Bang, you're out of here. So that, <laughs> I yeah, never looked right. back from there. You know, I went and got a job over at Kernel because they were building the oil refinery. Mm. And um, I laboured to the bricklayers over there, just wheel and barrows full of cement through the, through the desert on, you know, painter's planks for about 300 metres. So I was feared, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> what was your? You obviously said your your family background was Scottish, though. Was was it your was your dad Scottish or yeah. was both your parents? No, no, Scottish? mum and dad both Scottish. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, uh, yeah I think you've got the ten pound in import or something. You know, yeah. I don't remember much about that, but but you know what? It was a great way to live, a uh, great way to uh, be brought up. I mean, we brought lived in a hostel till we were thrown out of there because mum wanted to cook for us. They. Now they were doing obviously mass cooking and it wasn't very edible. So she wanted to cook for us and uh, so we got evicted out of there. And uh, Dad hunted around, not only us, but about 20 or 30 other families. Dad hunted around trying to find somewhere for us to live and eventually they, um, some people got some caravans. My dad actually got hold of a a, um, a big wooden crate that GMH used to bring cars out in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just like a shipping container only, it was it was made out of wood. Yeah, and sat it on a black block of land out at La Perouse, and we sort of lived in in that for a bit, you know. So yeah, right. Till they built some fibro sort of hut type things and did some sort of a deal with the government where they could build some houses and everybody helped each other build a house, and that that's how we sort of grew up. So it it sounds you know it sounds pretty rough and pretty ragged, but yeah, for us kids it was just a huge adventure, you know, it was a big adventure. So you're just doing like. Random shit every day because there was no mobile phones back then. So you just, I guess, had, that's that's I guess why I can see you're like entrepreneurial type of, yeah, right. you know, coming coming through because, you know, growing up in then those days, you just had to create create constant yeah. things to keep your mind. Yeah, you know, the best way to learn and the best way to, um, you know, become an entrepreneur is actually watch people that are ex- successful. Mm. You know, and and after a while, I mean, I I did everything, you know, a little bit of driving trucks and. Um, labouring and stuff like that. But eventually I thought, yeah, I want to do something a bit better. So I started looking at people who were successful and trying to trying to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, yeah, that was pretty much my education in the streets, you know. So Who were you looking towards back then? Like who, who stood out to you? No, not, not anything that I really remember in those days. But, um, you know, I mean, I basically started a whole bunch of different businesses. But I guess when I decided to build an aviation company, and, and, you know, everything I've done really throughout my whole life is really to get in a race car. That, you know, I was just a born and bred to drive race cars like I'm, you know. Yeah, just an adrenaline junkie. Well, you know, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm, you know, I was race-hardened since I was probably 14 years old. I was street racing at 14 years old for money. Yeah. And um, that was a good grounding. I, I wish I knew back then, even in the days of Speedway and, um, you know, Asheville, um circuits and then moving into NASCAR. Well, NASCAR was a little bit different, I guess. Mm. But in the early days, I wish I knew back then what I know now. Yeah. You know? 
because a lot of guys that I was racing against um, understood about weight transfer and geometry and all the stuff that we all kind of know now, you know. Yeah. And so they understood that. I didn't. I just all I knew was to drive the wheels off whatever I was given, and you know. Mm. <laughs> Where'd you get your first? Was was your first street like race car, like racing on the street? Was it just the car that you'd bought off the road, and or did you, or did you just? No, no. I how did bought, how did that actually work? I never work? bought anything, mate. I sold my mate's car on a Saturday night when his dad <laughs> went to the pub, and <laughs> that's when the racing was on down around uh, around some of the back streets of Botany Bay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so we'd take it out and. Yeah, run a few races. This is back in the day when there was well, you couldn't in those. I mean, I don't really want to promote that because no. nowadays it's pretty scary. And, yeah, and I'm really against kids going out there and killing yeah. themselves street racing. I, you know, I would do anything I could do to make sure that sort of stuff doesn't happen. But you got to remember, in those days, mate, there was hardly any cars at all, yeah. and um, we'd have guys block roads off. So we could just use little sections of roads that weren't even used. You know, they yeah. were yeah. used through the day, but not at night. Um, that was down behind the uh, behind the power station and the paper mills uh, along the edge of Botany. Yeah. Do you have any brothers or sisters or anything? Like- I've got a brother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I've got one brother. Yeah. Yeah. He's not into racing, but he's a, he's a great marketer. He yeah. was uh, CEO of one of the biggest marketing companies in the world. So he was very helpful in getting sponsors in the later years for me. You know, at least give me advice on how to approach them and how to talk to them. I mean, I used to get really nervous as hell walking into a boardroom to try and talk to people. But one bit of advice he gave me one day was that, George, he said, you got to remember, mate, these guys look at what you do and uh, look at what you've done and trust me, they want to be you. These guys have done nothing. They, they left school and went to uni, left uni and went into a corporate world and they're sitting in front of a big desk with a big title. But they ain't got the stories you got. <laughs> That's so true. You don't yeah. even think about that, like when you go to do like we we're, we're pitching now for this show and that, but you sometimes forget I've been on the other side of the table. Yeah. How jealous you get in corporate because you're like, I'm bored. Whereas yeah. you're doing crazy stuff. Never even thought of it that way. Yeah. That helped me a lot. That gave me um you know, gave me the courage, I guess, to go into some of the biggest boardrooms and when you're talking to people from companies like Goodyear and Optus and Triple M and things like that, it was um, it helps a lot to sort of think about it that way. Yeah, it, it puts a different slant on it, you know, and not that you want to go in there and be, um, you know, on yourself or anything, but it just helps you not to feel so intimidated. And I yeah. think yeah. that's pretty important when you're pitching anything, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You say you were saying. As well, when you're at school, you're into rugby league. Was it league or was it union? Yeah, no, it was league. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it wasn't that I was into it that much. I kind of just fell into it that way because that's what they did. Um, you know, the kids in, in the, uh, especially in the primary school, were, were really good at sport. They were great at cricket mm. and great at uh, and great at football. I kind of got roped into it a little bit because I wasn't sportsman material at all, to be honest. Yeah, um, I just remember one day that. Um, and especially a lot of the Aboriginal kids, they're fantastic at sport. They're really, uh, really fit and really good at, you know, cricket. But yeah. one day I remember, and the, this is how I got into playing cricket, was that I was walking through the playground, minding my own business, there was a big cricket match going on down on the field, and I heard somebody sing out, look out, and I sort of turned around, a cricket ball hit me right in the chest, and it hit me so hard it knocked me flat on my back, and obviously my hands went to my chest, Yeah, right, took all the wind away, and I thought I'd dried. And I sort of opened my eyes and there was a whole bunch of kids all standing looking down at me. And one of them goes, 
He's still got it. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden, I was a, I was a superstar cricketer. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. That's about the only. I tumbled into that really. Yeah, yeah. And you were saying about your bricklaying. It was eight. Was it fourteen when you left school? Yeah, I was fourteen. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah. Yeah, fourteen and nine months to be exact, right to the day. What was that like leaving school at that age? Because I left school in year ten, but I was seventeen, I think. But yeah, right. It was. Was that in? Like intimidating for you going into the workforce at that age or not really? No, not really. I mean, it was just, look, you know, I've never really felt intimidated with anything. It's just life to me. Yeah. And it's about putting one foot in front of the other and seeing what happens next, you know. Yeah. And then whatever comes along, you deal with it. Yeah. And that's pretty much what I've done all my life. So, no, it wasn't it wasn't intimidating. And, you know, I remember, I mean, it was a long time ago, and we were out in uh, – that was my very first job. I was out in the uh, – it was pretty much desert, desert out at Cornell, mm. just all sad. And when they were building that oil refinery, there was uh, – they didn't have concrete pumps in those days. What they had was a big steel vat that the truck could back up to, which is on the edge of the road, fill the concrete vat. So my job was to shovel the concrete out of the vat into a wheelbarrow and then wheel the wheelbarrow along probably 300 metres of, um, you know, six-inch-wide planks, painter's planks, mm. uh, to get to where the bricklayers were actually building and then you shovel out of that onto their boards and go back and get another load. So kind of didn't take a lot of brains to do that, but <laughs> I got fit. I was going to say a lot <laughs> yeah. of fitness. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I had a really – yeah, I met a lot of really good guys and had a good team around us and, you know, it was, it was fun, mate. As yeah. Life's been a big adventure. It's never been dull. Yeah. Know. Were your parents, like, influential in you and your brother – Becoming entrepreneurial or no, were they strict no, or all. anything or like that? Not or? at all. My no. brother was, uh, I mean, he was six years older than me, so he actually got a pretty good education and uh, mum and dad put him into um, private school and, you know, got him tutors and stuff like that. But there's a big gap there when you're uh, – when in six years doesn't sound, a lot of, sound like a lot, but in those uh, – at that age, it is a lot, you know what I mean? So he went down the, through the corporate world. Yep. So I think we were both ends of the spectrum, you know, I was kind of streetwise and my brother went through and got a really, really good education and, and, and grew up in the corporate world. I mean, not to say that he didn't do it himself, he did. I think he started off in the mailroom and worked up through uh, one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world, George Patterson Advertising, you know. Yeah, right. Wow. And then, obviously, your motorsports career will go back and forth in this podcast. That's what it's all about. Keep yeah, it, keep well, it. that's right. That's what I thought we'd come here to talk about race cars. You know? Well, into race cars now, you actually – you did get into Speedway. How would you get into Speedway growing up, though? Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, look, um, you know, I was, I, I was pretty reasonably successful with the uh, with the street racing, but it wasn't it wasn't as uh, exciting as what I would have liked it to be. And I just went, basically went along and watched the Speedway one time thought, yeah, I reckon I can do that. What Speedway was it um, Well, to be honest, I used to go to Sydney Showground. Yep. But I got a break because uh, there was a guy that owned a service station out, out at Matraville, out, not far from where I lived, and uh, convinced him that I could drive. Mm-hmm. And he sponsored me into a Mini which was uh, for the showground, for Sydney Showground. But Sydney Showground in those days was big, it was huge. You know, that was like the, yeah, that was the, the, the king of speedway there in those days. But we went down to uh, Kembla Grange down near Wollongong. Yep. He took me down there and we ran a few races down there and uh, they kept starting us further and further back in the field and we kept winning every race. So that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I started to think that it was 
I think she's I might be able to do this, you know. <laughs> but then we went to Sydney Showground. It was a whole different ball game. It was like it was big in those days, as I said. And uh, I can remember being pretty much scared to death. You almost had to lift me into the car. <laughs> and I remember sitting on the grid, and um, I'll never forget it. I was sitting next to a Tirana. So the Tirana was a bit higher than my um, than the Mini that I was driving. And uh, in those days, the driver's name was on the door sill, not up on the top. Yep. It was on the door sill. And I was right lined up to next to a, a guy called Nigel Deeth. Uh, but it was spelt death, D-E-A-T-H. So I look around and all I see staring at me face is death, you know. <laughs> I wasn't scared enough, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's how I, that, that was my starting speedway. And uh, I did a few years in that. And then um, where did they plonk the cars? Because I've seen where obviously now at Fox Studios where the spare was. Where were the cars parked to like come, the, on to, oh, come onto the speedway? Yeah, yeah. Un, in the bull ring underneath where they have all the animals that come out. Okay, so they they called it the bull ring. I don't know what they call it nowadays, but probably still the same thing. But yeah, the cars were all under there. Yeah, were you intimidated by the crowd though, or by what you're going out there to do? Well, because it was no, as you I said, think, it was packed. Do you know yeah, what I mean? it was. Oh, yeah, there was there was big crowds. No, the crowd didn't intimidate me. I mean, I I really liked that, and as I've said many times, I, I enjoy the people. It was more, um, I think it was more that I didn't want to look bad. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think I just wanted to go out there and do really well. So that was intimidating. You know, plus I'd seen a couple of guys, you know, that were sort of had some really big wrecks, even in speedway. I thought, yeah, I don't know if that looks like fun. <laughs> but anyway, I've had my share of them too. So. Yeah. What what other spirit like racing did you do though? Did you do midgets or anything like that? Or not? No, it was mainly just- sedans. Yeah. Uh, because I went from there. That was uh, it was only a few years after that that Liverpool Speedway uh, went to Asheville. Yeah. And then a number of Asheville tracks were built around Australia. So I got into that. And, As in uh, circles. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah okay. Speedway. Yeah. 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 Uh, Liverpool so, was probably the best. It was had a bit of banking and uh, quarter mile circuit, and you know, eight hundred horsepower. Like it, that was wild racing. I mean, yeah. but it was great racing and 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 a lot of really good people. I've been pretty fortunate. I reckon I've, I was thinking on the way down here. I've probably had about four careers in different types of racing. You know, I mean, I've had the the short tracks, uh, Asheville, uh, NASCAR, which was big for me, of course. So yeah, probably my most successful. And then the V8 Utes after that, mm. and that was my first real introduction into flat track. Yeah. And um, I think because I came from a, a pretty successful career in NASCAR, everybody thought I was going to be a superstar on the flat track as well. But I think I did all right, but I never felt that I was I was great at it. I think I did well enough to get good sponsors and, you know, always managed to run in, you know, reasonable sort of positions. Yeah. But it was so different. And, and in fact, I was trying to explain to somebody not long ago the difference between you know NASCAR that, that style of racing compared to the uh, to the flat tracks where you you really got to slow down to get into the corner and then come off fast and you know NASCAR is all about getting in there as fast and hard as you can man and coming out of the side like you've been fired out of a cannon you know so it's a big difference it's a little bit even now they're both you know it's both both motorsport but it's a bit like I guess like tennis or um, or squash both racquetball games you've got a ball and you've got a racket. But it's just a different method and a different um, – it's just, just a different approach to everything. And, yeah. and, you know, the difference between, you know, the the sort of racing that I was used to, the NASCAR racing, the high track, the high bank dovals and the road courses, I find it – I still find it hard to 
go into a, to slow down enough to go into a corner. I run in too hard. I still do that, even though I've done like a billion laps. Yeah, and uh, and still do. As I said, I still spend you know three or four days a week in a race car. And so your racing started from that servo guy sponsoring you, and then. Yeah, yeah, pretty much started there. Yeah, yeah. Right. He he's, he really was the first one to get me into motor racing. Yeah, but the, and then you just pushed your way through. Is that how you? And then you worked your marketing around that. Like how? Did yeah, it I worked all... the marketing around it. I mean, you're always looking for money, it never ends, you know. And you got to chase yeah. the money. And I guess when I was in uh, when I was in NASCAR in the earlier days, there the group it, it wasn't supercars, and then it was only there were Group A's. Yeah, so it was V eight Group A cars. They kind of weren't going anywhere. Mm. And I had an opportunity to sort of go down that road a little bit, but I was really heavily sponsored with NASCAR mm. and had a you know, had a really successful career. I was making good money out of NASCAR. Yeah. And uh, so it was kind of hard to walk away from that and go into a thing. In hindsight, did I make the wrong choice? Yeah, I don't know. That's arguable. I don't think so because I think I had a uh, – in my time, I think I had a fantastic career – uh, I loved every second of it. Mm. Unfortunately, it kind of died out here in Australia and uh, for a long time there. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, but I was, again, just never off planes. I had my family living there. My girls were young, um, just about to go into high school, and it kind of – So your girls were – I didn't want Ameri- there. Yeah, right. Well, but you were living there partly in North Carolina with your well, family. Well, I lived there for a couple of years, but I had my family living there full yeah. time, whereas I was on a plane. I'd be in a race car there and then out of a race car on an aeroplane and be racing here and then back on a plane. So it was just, you know, it was it was a hard way to live. And, and uh, you know, look, I, I liked America. I loved it. I enjoyed our time in America, but I didn't want to bring my kids up there. Yeah. And I had a lot more opportunities here anyway. Uh, it was really, really difficult to get big budgets in America unless you were part of the Bible Belt and, um, you mm. know. It, What's the Bible Belt? Like, there, was it their, like, little click, was it? Is it, is it the way it was? It's a big click, mate. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. you, you got to go to church every single Sunday, twice a day, and you got to be. Yeah. yeah let, let's leave that bit away as well. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. sure Tony voiced that in his podcast. Yeah, exactly. you got to be a long-haired lover of Jesus, mate, to be able to yeah. So, as I said, let's, let's leave that yeah. alone. Let's. But in NASCAR, as you're saying, it would, like you, you reckon it was worth it here. Do you reckon it could it have? Was. Do you reckon it could have gone beyond the Thunderdome yeah, if it gone I, a different way? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah, 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 definitely. I think if um, you know, had we had another super speedway, yeah, maybe in Queensland or somewhere else. I mean, we ran on the Thunderdome, obviously, and uh, we had the half mile bowl in Adelaide, which was fantastic racing. I mean, mm. the crowds there just packed that place. It was the crowds were so vocal; we could hear them in the race cars. And yeah, when right. you're sitting in there with, you know, 800 horsepower screaming in your ear, it's pretty loud, but you could hear the crowd. It was so exciting. It was really exciting. Yeah. And then, of course, we took in uh, a number of road courses as well, mm. which was uh, which was great. We, I ran the first five years of uh, Surface Paradise with the uh, with the Indy cars. Yeah. So that was when it was the full long, the really long track, like high speed. Mm. Uh, and uh, that was exciting. It was great. I mean – but it was a bit of a party. I mean, we were up there for a week doing a bit of testing and pretty much at the end of the week, if you could round your crew up, we'd go racing. <laughs> That's how it worked. That's yeah, how it worked, right. you know. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But yeah. you just, just like anything, mate, you just you never stop trying to find money. It's, yeah. Uh, 
It's yeah. never ending. But you got some cool sponsors back then. You had Pens Oil and yeah, yeah, Optus, and and that was obviously due to your like entrepreneurial, like creating. Yeah, pretty know. much. Look, and again, you know, one thing sort of leads to another. But I had great sponsors, but I had they were great people as well. You know, yeah. like the people with the real McCoy, for instance. The real McCoy were, you know, I ran a three car NASCAR team with the real McCoy. Yeah, Bourbon. And uh, they were just great people and a lot of fun to be around, to, to be with, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that probably would have went on a long time, longer, a lot longer. I think I had Real McCoy for about three years, mm-hmm. but they were bought out. They were, Real McCoy was bought out by, I think it was UDL, and they had a worldwide policy against motorsport. Yeah, um, right. So that kind of killed that. There was nothing anybody could do about it. It was just okay. it was a policy that was written into their, you know, written into the rules. It was there was no negotiations on that. So that kind of killed that. But I had yet yeah, a lot of others like you know Optus, Triple M. Triple M were great. They were they were a lot of fun. They were mm. they were good people. You know? I think from your sponsorship, that's why they hung hang around hung around longer at Parramatta Speedway. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, they right. were, they were doing the the two set of yeah, cars. That's right, they did, yeah. I mean? yeah. yeah, that's right. They did. So. So that was pretty cool, and then um, Promar Systems—they were good. They were good sponsors on the NASCAR, and, and again, you know, I, I'd like to think that pretty much every sponsor I've ever had is—I could ring up at any at any time and have a great conversation with them because I always try to give back a lot more than what I took. Yeah, and I think that's something that is really important for you know young guys to remember. It's easy to think that you know you're going to go out there and put your hand out, and somebody's going to give you a handful of money, mm. and you're just going to put your name, put their name on a race car. <clears throat> Doesn't work that way, you know. Especially nowadays, it's it's actually a lot harder nowadays even than than what it was back then. It was tough enough then, but nowadays you've got accountants that want to get involved, and it's got to be transparent. You know what I mean? Like if somebody's giving you three or four hundred thousand dollars, they want to know they're getting eight hundred thousand dollars worth of value out of it. Yeah, and uh, you got to be able to show that. You know, unless you've got a mate that's CEO of some big company or whatever and just loves doing what he does. Yeah, you know? and just having a good time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. So you had to kind of create back then in the 90s and that, and obviously the early 2000s as well, and even in the Super Utes days, you had to kind of create an aura around you to keep them involved. Is that how Yeah, you do. How you it's not step? hard to keep them involved. I mean, if you can get them involved in the first place, then they obviously have a love for it. Mm. So then once you, um, you know, once you encourage them to make sure they come along, bring some sponsors, and if you can put them into a race car, that's the best thing you could ever do because there is nothing like making a, a friend out of a, uh, out of a client. Yeah. Nothing works better than putting them in a race car, let me tell you. They, they just love it, you know. I mean, and it's like what I do now for a living. It's, it's just such a feel-good business, you know. You give people a, a thrill, they go away believing they've just done something they never ever thought they'd be able to do in their life. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty cool thing to when, really do. When did you start V8 Race, though? When, when, when was the first? If, if well, I started um, – I didn't actually start V8 Race. What happened was I actually started another company called um, Nastrack, yeah. which was a similar thing on uh, on the Thunderdome. Yeah. And I then took that to America – and I started it in America with Richard Petty. Yeah, So right. it was Richard Petty, myself, and I brought Gary, uh, Barry Graham in out of that as well. And I'll never forget sitting in – you talk about sitting in boardrooms. I was in the boardroom with Humpy Wheeler, who was like the yeah. head on show <laughs> over there in uh, in Charlotte Motor Speedway. Yeah. And uh, Richard goes, yeah, you tell him, George. Tell him what you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so when I told Humpy Wheeler I was going to put somebody in NASCAR and let them drive it and follow me around the track, he – he sat there very quiet for about five minutes trying to sort of absorb it. 
And he said, you're going to what? <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, he just couldn't get his head around it. Yeah. And then, you know, that, that, was, uh, that was something else that, that sort of continued to grow. And again, when I didn't really want to live in America anymore, I sold out of, uh, sold out of that mm. and uh, came back to Australia. And then Marshall Brewer and a couple of other people had started uh, Fast Track mm. in, uh, in Oscars. Yep. And I think they started to grow then. And I kind of got a little bit involved with Kim Jane because Kim and I raced together for years. Mm. Um, Kim Jane and I raced bang and trying to kill each other for about 20 years, I guess. <laughs> um, and Kim was involved and he said to me, you know, you want to, Marshall wants to sort of sell out. You want to get involved. So I got involved in that and Kim and I bought, didn't buy Marshall out, but we bought into the company. Yeah. And then it kind of grew from there. And then eventually I bought Kim out and I bought, um, and I bought Marshall out. Yeah. And we were sort of banging heads a little bit with V8 Race. Mm. And I think Greg Evans rang one day and spoke to me and had a chat. said, George, what are we doing? Like, why don't we get together and have a bit of a chat and see whether or not there's something we can do together? So we uh, brought the two companies together. And I've got to say the first year was was tough. Uh, they had a lot of different ideas on how to run the business and what than what I did mm. and what we did, and um, but after about a year, we sorted out all the egos because it's a it's an ego driven business, as you know. You know, yeah. motor racing man, if you <laughs> <laughs> everyone has to be the top. Well, you know what, and, yeah. and you pretty much got to. You know, I learned a long time ago too that. I don't care how good you are. You could be able to tell yourself, you know what, I'm the best there is. Yeah. If you can't tell yourself that and convince yourself that out, you ain't ever going to be the best. Yeah. And you're never going to win. Yeah. So as uh, as corny as that sounds, I think that's every sport. I've even heard it like is, Clarissa yeah. Shields, one of the top boxers in the world, that was yep. in an interview, and she said the same thing. She goes, "If I don't walk into the Olympics and say I am going to win and mm. I am the best," she goes, "Why the hell am I there?" Yeah. You've got to believe true. it. Yeah. yeah. It's true. It's, it's psychological, but you've got to be able to just – you really got to believe when you walk out there or when you drive out there, man, I'm the best there is. Yeah. What's and it, that's it. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you. Yeah. yeah. What's it been like, obviously, motivational speaking and stuff like that, like encouraging people like my generation and whatnot to get out there? Because yeah. you know what I mean? Like you came from nothing to create something. Sure. So how do you get around – Motivate, motivating people, you know, who are paying to hear what you say. Well, you, know what, you know what, motivating people is is it's easy if you got the runs on the board. I guess you know mm. I've got plenty to talk about. Uh, do I enjoy uh, public speaking? Probably not. Mm. Once you get started, it's it's good. But you know, I mean, look, public speaking is probably up there with the you know the biggest fears there are in the world. I think it's above snakes and spiders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's tough, but once you get started and you get the audience involved, it's actually quite easy and it's, and it's a lot of fun. I really like it once I get started. Yeah. And, uh, as I say, because I've got so many different aspects of my life that I can talk about, it kind of makes it reasonably easy. Um, but I do enjoy people. I enjoy being able to give to people Mm. is what I'm trying to say. And I guess that's what brings me back to the coaching in the race cars that we do. Yeah. As I said, now I, I don't coach that much. I kind of – I guess I got to a point where I thought I got tired of wondering who's going to try and kill me today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so I sort of just decided, well, 
you know, and and that's not quite the case. You know, a lot of people come out there, as I say, it's a gift business really more than it's not a race car business. Mm. Everybody thinks it is, but it really isn't. It's a gift business, you know. It's something that you can buy mum or dad or a brother or whatever. Yeah. They can come out, do something they would never actually do for themselves yeah. and, and have a really great day. But every now and again, I would get some people and I could name a few that – I've taken under my wing a little bit and gone, you know what, he or she really wants to learn. Well, then I'm happy to give and give and give and give. Mm. And uh, I love that and love watching them grow and get better and better at it, you know. And I've done that with people that have gone out and then got their own team and won championships. I think Nathan and that's Hearn's, a real buzz. Nathan Hearn's done that with you though because he, in the Trans Am stuff, he's, he's yeah. now excelled, do you know what I mean, since mm. racing with you. Look, Nathan's um, – Nathan didn't need me. Nathan's yeah. a very talented driver. Yeah. And a great kid. Um, his dad was a great speedway driver. Mm. Did you ever race his dad? No. No. no okay. No. His yeah. dad was into, uh, I think he was into sprint cars. Yeah. Late model sort of stuff. Like, yeah. Well, Just, mainly sprint cars, but he was, yeah. he was out of it for a long time before I even met him. Mm. So, no, I didn't. It's funny, man. I'm racing against. <laughs> I'm gracing against grandkids now. <laughs> <laughs> it gets a bit scary after a while when I start to think about it, you know. Yeah. And, and quite often people say, man, how do, you, how do you do that? How can you sit in a race car for eight hours or whatever or seven or eight hours a day? But when it's something you've done all your life, I guess you grow into it. I mean, the hardest part these days is getting in and out. Yeah. <laughs> the rest, the driving's easy, Yeah, you know. Yeah. What did you think? What did you compare, like, obviously, the Trans Am stuff that you're doing now every now and then to the – V8 Utes back when it was like pack, packs of 40. Do you know what I mean? Brooke and I have spoken about it where yeah, there's all the characters. Wild, they were great. There was Grant Denner yeah. with you. Do you know yeah, what I mean? There was, yeah. oh, geez, it was everyone. Look, I had a great, uh, yeah, well, I had a great career in the uh, in the V8 Utes mm. and it was a family of probably 30 or 40 guys. I mean, we had to start, I forget now, I think it was 32 cars. That was the minute we had to start. Mm. And big fines if you didn't start, you know, it probably cost you a $15,000 fine. If you didn't front up and start, so it, wow. it was pretty serious. So know? if you didn't enter your car, you'd get a fine in, yeah, in a way. Yeah. Oh, so you actually commit to the series. You too. had to commit to the series. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, you know, again, I had pretty good sponsors there. Probably one of the best sponsors I ever had was uh, Victoria Coffee. Yeah. And and again, they were fantastic people and and really got behind us. So it was great, and I actually loved promoting their product. Nowadays, I enjoy drinking it more than I enjoy <laughs> promoting it. But, uh, but they were great. Yeah, they were great. But that was a um, that was wild racing, right? Yeah. That was more about that was just ball to the wall racing. Yeah, know? and uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of fun, mate. I think I had maybe maybe about ten years or something in the Utes, and uh, and I learned a lot. And even even now, though, I wish I knew when I was racing the Utes, what I know now about driving race cars on, on road tracks, on flat tracks. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I've, I've come a long way and learned a lot of stuff from since then. Uh, the the opportunity I had to drive the TA2 car, I actually first saw the, the first two TA2 cars mm-hmm. at uh, Sydney Motorsport Park and they were just on display. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the guys then, but they knew me. And I walked past and sort of had a look. <laughs> I didn't yeah. really want to look, but I had a look, you know. Yeah. And they wanted me to jump in one seat once. I ain't getting in it because I'm not falling in love with it. And I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, but I said even at that time, you know what, this this is going to be the biggest biggest change to motorsport in Australia. Yeah. You, you wait and see what happens with this, and it's growing now. I think there are about 160 cars here now. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's huge, you know. And uh, I had the opportunity to get in with um, – Craig Scutella in Dream Racing, 
the very first, I committed to a three-year deal mm. with, with him. He wrote up a contract for three years. And um, so I remember the very first race, I'd, I'd already had a lot of damage on my shoulder. Mm. And because they're a left-hand drive car and you're changing gears, I actually wrenched my shoulder in the first race, first lap, and tore all the ligaments in my shoulder, mm. which made it incredibly painful. So I didn't have as, as good a season. No, look, I had an okay season, you know, mm. but I didn't have as good a season as what I know I could have because I was in so much pain. Every gear change was like agony, like you wouldn't believe. But I rode it out for the season. Yep. And uh, then I had to go in and have an operation. By the time I got in to get the operation, the um, the ligaments were completely severed mm. and also torn all the muscle down inside in the arm as well. So it was a fairly yeah. big operation, so about six were, months. So you were going the whole season with your ligaments torn? Yeah, oh, yeah. I was going to say, because that's one of the worst injuries to have over yeah, broken bones because the yeah, ligaments are so hard to fix. Unbelievably yeah. painful. Like, you can't imagine how painful uh, that sort so of So were you just strapping is. the whole season? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, yeah. as I said, every gear change was like yeah. just killer, you know. Yeah. So that cost you time. Yeah. You know, look, and, you know, it's amazing how much time you can lose. And I learned in NASCAR, just the click of the button can cost you a tenth of a second, yeah. you know. I remember sitting in the stands one year at, um, uh, I think it was the Thunderdome actually, yeah, hmm. sitting up there all by myself. I've got a photo of it somewhere. And um, I was just sitting down looking over the track and thinking to myself, like, how can I just be a tenth of a second faster? Like, you can't even think that fast, you know what I mean? When you yeah. take one second and divide it into ten, you yeah. think you can't even think that that fast. And yet I could I could go around there lap after lap after lap within a tenth of a second, mm. right? And um I think I'd broken the track record and had more poles than anybody ever had. Mm. So I pretty much felt that I was getting the most out of the car. I needed to get more out of myself. And when I was looking down there and I was thinking about it and I thought about every hump, every bump there is on the racetrack, I thought, you know what, the only thing I reckon I can do is try to lift a little bit later, yeah. okay? And I remember I went back down there and I saw my crew chief, Mike Stewart, American crew chief, and he's still actually still a great friend. I talk to him at least once a, once a week and he lives mm. in Charlotte. He's he going, what are you doing sitting up there on your own? You know, I told him what I was doing. He said, Forget that. Just get in it and drive it, you know. Yeah. Said, Car's got a 27.2 in it or something, he would tell me, and I'd go out there and run a 27.2. Yeah. But I remember coming down the straightaway and I got to where I would normally lift off and I thought I'm going to take one more breath before I lift. And that's basically what came down to breaking the track record and beating the Americans at their own game. Wow. It was just one more breath, mate. <laughs> Took that one breath and then I lifted. Yeah. Ran in the car, went into the corner that hard that the front part of the chassis actually hit the track, hit the racetrack. I just leaned on the brake with my left foot a little bit, not to not to slow it down, but just to transfer a little bit of weight. The car skidded sideways about a, about a car width, and then I started laying back into the gas and coming out of the corner. I came out of turn two, like I said, like I was fired out of a cannon, about a centimetre off the wall and just kept into it. Uh, ran into turn four, uh, turn three, mm. which had a hump in the track. Yeah, so you had to hit that right. If you hit that wrong at that speed, you were airborne, and yeah, 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 you're only the passenger. Didn't but they try to fix that part? They of the tried track? to, but yeah. it didn't, didn't work out. So I went over that. I managed to land it, and then start peeling back into into the car. And to be honest, it it didn't really feel as fast as some of the other tracks, some of the other laps that I'd run. But uh, when I came off track and came down pit lane and all the crews were there clapping and I knew, I thought, gee, we must have had a good run, you know. Mm. 
Uh, but it wasn't until I got out of the car that I'd found out we'd beaten the Americans' time and uh, and broken the track record. And that was the first time the track record had been broken. We broke it time and time again after that because then everybody believed and understood, you know what, it's not impossible because it was set, the track record was set when it was first opened and the track had just been laid. It was like a billiard ball, like, yeah. like a billiard table, sorry, yeah, yeah. and uh, really smooth. And um, although we were supposed to all run the same tyres, there's a couple of the American cars, especially the, the car that set the track record, drove off the track straight round to the garages, into the garage and pulled the doors down. Yeah, so you, right. you, can, you can decide for yourself what happened about tyres there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, who knows? But anyway, that was, uh, that was interesting. But what, what, what led me to that was I learned that just the click on the button, you know your crew chief's going to tell you something, you can lose a tenth of a second, you know. So the focus and the concentration has to be so great um, that it's unbelievable. And that's another thing about NASCAR. You don't have that time to relax. Mm. I mean, I've just come off Bathurst and did, you know, I don't know, God knows how many laps I just did in Bathurst over two or three <laughs> days. But yeah. um, I'm going down Conrod there at, you know, I don't know, 280 kilometres an hour or something, looking around at the <laughs> looking at yeah. the cows, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, you don't get that opportunity in an NASCAR. I mean, it doesn't yeah. happen, you know. You've got to be so... So focused, you know, but I loved it. I mean, I'd be back in NASCAR again mm. in a heartbeat if I could. And if I was younger, of course, you know, because nowadays you look at the – there are kids coming through there at 17 or, you know, 16, 17 years old yeah. with, you know, truckloads of money. And that's the other thing. I mean, if you're not – if you haven't got a $30 million budget nowadays for the year, you ain't even in it, you know. So yeah. it's a shame it gets to that. But it, that was even, you know, initially like the idea of the, the TA2 cars – it's it's the right idea, whereas you keep everything has to be the same. Mm. But there are always ways of not cheating but doing better. And that was like the V8 Utes. The V8 Utes were a fantastic category mm. and, um, you know, they tried to keep everything exactly the same. But I didn't have the budgets that some of the front-running teams were, but, I mean, I – I knew everybody, everybody knew me. So mm. I had guys, and, and without naming names, they're taking brake rotors and brake pads off the cars, for instance, yep. uh, to, to throw away. Well, we were grabbing them, putting them back on, putting them onto our car because we didn't have the budget. Yeah. But they were twice as good as what I was running anyway. Yeah, and even right. gearboxes, you know. I remember uh, Kimbo changing gearboxes. that We all had to run the same gearbox, but after you run it for so long and it's taking you, you know uh, – you're, you're changing gears in like, you know, four-tenths of a second. But if you've got a new box in there, you're changing in two-tenths of a second. Yeah. And when you're changing gears 25 times a lap, it all adds up. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't equate to that. Exactly. So you'd even use some of their old gearbox? Would you just yeah, use I'd some get, of their yeah, spare? Kimbo would give me his gearbox and I'd suck that in my car because it was better than mine. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, when that, and it's all that's the sort of thing that keeps you going. Yeah. And that's the sort of stuff that I just – had to do to be able to keep fronting up all the time. Yeah. Because I didn't have a $300,000 budget uh, to run a ute, you know. It was crazy. What do you think of the new utes now that are out compared to what you were racing? You can give it an honest opinion. It's a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, to, to be honest, initially when they first brought them out, I yep. didn't like them at all. Yeah. Yep. I thought it's kind of a bit of a – it's a little bit of an insult to what we do, to be honest. You yeah. Know? But now they've – They've um, and I think uh, Luke Cedars has done a great job in transforming them all into race cars. You know, they've got yeah. V8s in them now. They've lowered them. They've actually turned them into race cars. So the and I as a, as I say, I haven't had anything to do with them, but I've I've seen them a couple of times, and I think they they look great. 
I actually wouldn't mind having a running one, you know. Yeah. But it's just not where I've gone. And I'm so busy with um with the business. And as I say, man, I'm in a different state almost every week or every second week. According to <laughs> it was ridiculously hard to try and get you to find a spot. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I like, well, trust me. I, I thought I thought one thing, I thought, you gotta think I'm lying to you. Yeah. Which is why I said you make FaceTime me and yeah. I showed you my camera on the wall, which is just a mess. You know? Dan showed me. I'm like, is there a hole in Yeah, that's what I was looking for. I'm just looking for a gap somewhere. And uh, you know, well it's like today. I thought, well, okay, we've got Four days at the uh, Sydney Motorsport Park this week, mm. and I know the Thursday is is mainly um, corporates. Yeah, because we're kind of getting to that time of the year when all the corporate type stuff's coming out. I thought, yeah, that's probably the best shot I've got. I'm going to take the morning off and I'll put someone else in the car for that. Yeah. Um, but then when I got there this morning at 7.30, this is going on, that's going on, I'm thinking. Fuck you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to get in the car and go. That yeah. was it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, but no, look, I'm sure it's all – I'm sure it's all rolling on pretty well without me. <laughs> yeah. In fact, probably run better without me in the middle of it. So, see, yeah. for me with the with the Utes the way it is now <laughs> is I would kind of have a mixture of what it is, what Luke's done, and what you've done, where it would be like the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. Do you yeah, know what right. I mean? like, yeah. like it seems like Luke is there the yeah. way that they could do it. But if they just lowered the car, it would look cooler yeah, for the it, fans. It would, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, when they first talked about that, I actually thought they were going to um, they were going to come up with the Craftsman Truck idea because they're that that's a fantastic series in the states mm. and it's 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 a tough series you know it's tight and uh they're all sort of running under the same rules as the nascars do mm. but they can get a bit carried away with it too i think probably i mean i'll keep bouncing back to nascar but probably one of the best races or, or one of the most gratifying nascar races i ever won uh, I won from the back, and the only reason I was on the back was because I actually put the car on pole, mm. but I think they were a bit sick of me winning pole. So what they did was they'd have a thing that run around under the skirt of the car, mm. and the car was about the thickness of a five-cent piece too low. Yeah. It just basically settled. But that was enough for them to go, nut nah, rear field. Yeah, right. So I had to go rear field, but I actually won that race, and it was I think it was about a 200-lap race. And I think I probably got the most satisfaction out of ever winning a race because yeah. I got out of that, you know. <laughs> was the NASCAR, like, because I've never – I mean, I actually went on your Richard Petty drive days, but it's on the wall there. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, That was actually, by the way, George, my first ever time that I'd actually driven a manual car. Is that so right? So in America, yeah. Jeff and my mum sent me over to America to, to go and do a NASCAR trip because I was obsessed with NASCAR. That's yeah, how I, sure. You and Ambrose are the one, the two guys yeah. that essentially got me into yeah. NASCAR and all that type of thing. So I did the call to park thing with you, then went overseas, but I never, you just took me around the track, I think. you must, It was probably you that took me around the yeah, track. Right, yeah, And then And then I went overseas and then Jeff goes to me, he goes, oh, you're actually going to drive a race car over in America. And I was like, I was like 14, 15 at the time. Yeah, I was right. like, oh, bullshit. Yeah. He goes, no, no, I checked the papers and I checked the, the itinerary that he gave me overseas <laughs> yeah. and I hopped in a NASCAR and I was like, yeah. holy shit, they're just ridiculously quick. Yeah. But back to what I was saying is when you set up a NASCAR, what you were saying to go quicker, was it all about the shocks more or was it a certain setup that would make the car work around like yeah, the Thunderdome, for example? Definitely. and But we had to run the same shocks, mm. same everything. But it was all about you could get the, the ride heights a little bit different. You could use a different rating on a spring Mm. Um, and you know, as I, I mentioned, my crew chief, um, Mike Stura, it was a, a fantastic crew chief and I just had complete trust in him and he knew, I didn't actually know what to do to the car, but I could read what the car was doing. Yeah. So I could say to Mike, mate, the car's, it's too tight. 
you know, or we're too loose or whatever. And we'd come in, mate, and within, you know, half a second he would just quickly make some sort of adjustment, go out there, and it was a different car to drive. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, I, I can remember we were running so consistently you could change one pound of tyre pressure in the left rear or the, the right front or whatever, mm. and it would give you just a little bit more. Uh, you know, you could get it so finely tuned, even though they're compared to, you know, I guess cars today, they're a bit archaic, you know. Yeah. Um, they're just brute force and ignorance, to be honest. Yeah. You know, but you could uh, you could adjust things. You could lay the blade back a little bit or you could, you know, do different things like that, and and it would make a difference because it was just so fine, mm. and we're all pretty much the same, which brought it kind of back to the driver, you know, more than anything. Mm. What do you think about the new NASCARs in America, like the the new the new generation? Do you like them, or do you prefer like the older style? No, I prefer the older style. I think the yeah. older style was much more um, grassroots racing. Yeah, you know, it's just becoming so. They're expensive. like a sports car. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And it's just become, there's just so much money involved now, mm. you know, and money's going to win. It's, yeah. You know, it, it always comes back, unfortunately, to how fast you want to go is how much money you want to spend. Yeah. You know, and, and no matter how many times or how you try to make the parity the same, if you can afford to be putting, changing rotors and pads and gearboxes and you still might be the same gearbox and the same pads, but... They're newer, they're better. Yeah. So that's why you end up, you know, that that's where the speed is. And then that it just comes back to money. You know? Unfortunately, that's uh that's the truth of it, you know. So Yeah. Well we'll go a bit off the racing thing for a bit because you are you've done more than racing. You are a two time <laughs> best selling author. And you've done multiple things and including a including a movie that Brooke and I watched last night. <laughs> what was it like like obviously deciding to go down that route? Because you know you you know cars so well. What was what was the decision to just change mindset and decide to write a book and racing racing i yeah. remember sitting in the back of the transport all busted up one year last race of the season mm. and uh sponsorship deal had finished yep i don't remember what sponsor it was now but i thought to myself you know what i've got to do something a bit different something will get me into different boardrooms and get me in front of different ceos and i thought i didn't think about writing a book i thought you know what i'll write a movie and i'll star in it can't be that hard like yeah I figured, you know, what Sylvester Delane did it, Stallone did it, and Paul Hogan did it. Can't be that hard. Surely I can do that. Yeah. So I knew the story I wanted to write. So I wrote the first book, which was Final Custody. And basically, I just write from life experience. Mm. So, you know, if people, once people read Final Custody and Terminal Greed, then they want to know, is this all true? Well, I'll leave that to you. Yeah. <laughs> so it is. Oh, that's my question where I was looking at like, Final custody for those who might be listening and like don't know it was like you've written it about a woman whose husband's taken the, the kid and they're part of a, a Colombian cartel and she's obviously dealing with all of the dangers of that. Is it sort of you've written it in a way like is it directly you've been in Colombia, dealt with all that stuff or is it more just sort of you use something that's happened in your life and then put a different scene on it to mask it? Oh, look, you know, I think there's always the um – You've always got to make things a little bit more interesting than what they are in real life. Yep. But, yeah, look, I did uh, – I was involved for many, many years with um, uh, covert personal protection and, uh, you know, looking after people. So I've not only had the opportunities throughout my life to give people a great thrill, but I've always had an opportunity to keep them safe as well. Oh, and, so you worked uh, in that side of so things as well. So I worked in that yep. side of industry, okay. yeah, yep. for, uh, for, yeah, for a long, long time. 
And uh, again, that's not something that you advertise or you push, so we won't tell anybody about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but can I ask, was that to pay for racing ever or was well, that before no, racing? No, but that helped, yep. you know. Okay, yep. Yeah, that that's that helped. Yep. Um, and so when I I decided, to, as I said, the the whole initial thought was to get me into different boardrooms, just yep. get other people to pay attention. Yep. Yeah. You know, because really, we live in a racing world where we think the world revolves around racing, but it actually doesn't. It's actually only this big compared to this. Yeah. It's just a very small. And people, a lot of people have said to me, "Why don't you write a book about racing?" Which I could um, and could probably. You know, I've got a billion stories I could talk about in, in, in motor racing, mm. which I love. That's obviously my passion. Yeah. Um, but the re- realistically, there's not a great audience out there. There's not a big audience for, for motor racing. And if I think about any motor racing movie that's ever been made. Mm. There's been like two really. Yeah, yeah. And that's for that reason because the, the, the audience isn't that big. Yeah. And, and again, the movies weren't that successful. Mm. But only because it comes back to numbers. Everything comes back to numbers. Yeah. You know? And as I said, whether it was, um, you know, whether it was being involved in that life or whether it was involved in, you know, flying choppers or pretty much everything I've ever done was to either be able to find money to go racing or get me in front of the right people that had money to help me to go racing. Yeah. Um, so I guess my, my life has been, um, all about racing with a backdrop of hotels or flying or doing all these other things. Mm. That's been the backdrop to sort of, to support and continue to help me to go racing, you know? Yeah. Now you used your, your actual racing transporter to promote your book because of, you said that like the movie industry was just, just, it's just hard to get into. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Look, the movie industry is a, uh, Making the movie was the easy bit, to be honest. Yeah. The hardest bit with the movie was the uh, the politics behind it because the industry hated me. Mm. Nobody should be allowed or able to go ahead and do what I did. I was told it was impossible and it would take a miracle of what I did. So I made my own miracle, my own um, production company. I called it Miracle Productions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you did I well. If you got a good business card, you can do anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you did well because your film, The Crop, like as we said, it got the New York Film Festivals Award for the best feature film. So yeah. they may have knocked it in Australia because, like, I've as we we're talking earlier, I've worked in film and I've seen it. I think it even happens to today. They, there's clicks, networking, so forth, and people feel like if you haven't followed a certain path or done a certain thing, you're not entitled to be yeah. there. And I, I, I got, I've seen that firsthand. That's a that. big thing. Yeah, big thing. but you even you took it overseas and you proved them wrong. And yeah, look, you know that was um, look. I guess when I talk about the politics behind it, uh, they they couldn't allow there was a number of companies that didn't want me to get released right and I managed forcefully to get released into a hundred cinemas across Australia but they could not allow it to be successful because they'd poured so much money into other films yeah right? okay. and so for me to come along and my film to outstrip their films mm-hmm. when they'd tipped hundreds of millions of dollars in, there was, there was too much involved. And I didn't understand any of that. I knew nothing about it, right? Mm. Um, even down to like they wouldn't put my posters up in the theatres because they had a marijuana leaf on it. That was their reasoning. I mean, yeah. pretty pretty lame. And they wouldn't promote me in a lot of other areas. So basically I painted my transporter up 
and uh, had a guy drive it all around Australia for me, Graham Ellis, yeah. and just park it in different places. So I'm basically trying to market my film and my books yep. off the back of my race car transporter. And that was around the Olympics too on top well, of that, Well, that, that was the thing. They, yeah. Because, as I said, they had to be seen to at least release me, um, but they released me the day the Olympics opened and they pulled my film out the day the Olympics closed. So, I mean, nobody goes anywhere when the Olympics are on. Okay? I was about to say, yeah. I can see what they've yeah. done there. So there was yeah. all those sort of things that I was up against. So, again, you know, making the movie was a great experience. I loved it I mm. and I, I've, uh, I've got great memories from it. And, and you know what, I even had like critics I know now, I know that critics were paid to actually give me the work to just drip me of everything. And um, that's, that's hard to sort of cop, you know, but – I read some of the uh, some of the, the the slanderous bloody writing they put out there, and I'm thinking these guys didn't even look at my film. They they're talking about a different, different movie. It's not even the same. We movie. felt that because we read some of the reviews first because we watched it last night when we were watching it. Dan and I'm like, this is not anything that they've said is not true yeah, in here. Yeah. This is great. Like there was like lots of great moments in that movie and that one of our favourite was the donkey one. I yeah, love it. Right, yeah. <laughs> that was great. No, it's, a, it's a fun flick. You um, know what? And again, I had great people around me. Yeah. But I had one, I remember one guy wrote, how do people, how would anybody be able to raise the money? Who would give this bloke money to make a film? Well, we didn't have then, unfortunately, the platform that I've got now with social media to be able to answer any of that. They had it all to themselves. They could write whatever they want to do in the papers and you had no way of saying anything. The reality was that for me to make that film, I spent 25 years building a business that I sold yep. in order to raise the money to make the film. Oh, well, so nobody a, yeah. gave me money. I didn't use anybody else's money. What I did was sell a business I took 25 years building so I could employ 200 people yep. in the cinema industry. Was that your hotel business? Yeah. It was, yeah. So we were wondering that if you used that to do it. Yeah, that was my question was going to be, how did you, did you get investors through racing or did you do it, you paid it all yourself? I paid it all myself. Wow, that's amazing. And that, yeah. yeah. And I did it because I didn't want to take people's money. I didn't want to. I didn't take one cent off the film boards or anybody. And as I said, I employed two hundred people in the film industry, and yet I, it was almost like I'd raped and murdered somebody's <laughs> mother. You but know, see, like the I'm film industry is so hard to get work. And I said that today when yeah. I saw that you can see a crew that says it's not just the actors; it's the extras. It's the it's the people working on so cameras, caterers, yeah. this, that. And you've given all this work to people who yeah. are always trying to look for work. And yeah. you've got some great names in there, like Reese Muldoon and that, who yep. have gone on to be you know do a lot yeah, of acting. Sure. And yeah. you've given them that opportunity. Um, I also saw your agent. Martin Bedford that you were hooked up with, was he a big part in helping you through that he as well? He was a great help. Martin yep. was a great help and an absolute gentleman. He was a really, really nice guy. You know what? I actually I had fantastic people around me, had really good people around me, and I made sure that they were happy with what they were doing. I remember walking off the set some nights at like 4 o'clock in the morning, the, the donkey night, for instance, yep. I got dragged through bushes and scrubs like you wouldn't believe. Were you actually that. attached to a donkey doing part that? Part of it was and part <laughs> of it was beyond, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but you know what? I'd hear the, the grip boys and the, the electricians that they'd be in the trees undoing everything. They're up there whistling and just having a, a great old time. And yep. I've, got a, I've got a book that everybody sort of wrote a little comment in and it's great to be able to read that stuff. So, you know, I look back, as I do, I like to be able to look back on stuff and go, you know what? Did I do the best I could possibly do? And if the answer is, you know, yeah, it is. I did the best I could do. Yeah. To me, that's there's no more you can do. That's yeah. all you can say, isn't it? What else can you do? 
you know. So whatever anyone else thinks about all the politics behind it, that's all, you know, you just got to be able to let that go. I mean, I'm about to, uh, as I mentioned to you, Dan, mm. both final custody and um, and terminal greed will be re-released um, probably not long after Christmas, I think, because there's so many platforms now for mm. them to go out onto so people will be able to get them. I actually On Amazon and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. Amazon, uh, Kindle, yep. you know, all the platforms that are available now that weren't available in those days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's another long story, getting a book released. I mean, it's almost anybody will tell you it's impossible to get a book released. Yeah, right? I mean, Tony even gave it a go too himself. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, what we found interesting was that I've you told Bryce Courtney a fib and I thought that was amazing because <laughs> I was like, this is the Bryce Courtney, you know, yeah. everyone knows him for Power uh, of One yeah. and that. Yeah. And even my dad actually did his plumbing on his house up the is Central right? Coast. Yeah. yeah, that was so yeah. funny. But can you tell everyone what was the fib that you told him to get well, him? Well, Bryce, it, it was funny because what happened was that I'd um, – I had no idea how to write a book. In fact, as I said, I didn't try. I didn't set out to write the book. I wrote out to write a movie. Yep. Mm. But I had no idea how to do that. I'd never read anything in my life. Didn't yep. read a book. Didn't read. Never seen a film script. But I thought if I write the person's name, what they said and what they did, that would give me a format to follow. Yep. So I did that, and I got the story out. Okay. <coughs> and I went along to. Um, well, actually, no. I, I said to my brother, I said, "Listen." I've written a book. I'm sure he thought I'd fallen out of my tree. He said, yeah, I've hit my head too many times, you know. <laughs> so next thing I got a phone call from Bryce Courtney because he, my brother Ian knew Bryce. Yeah, yeah I was okay. going to ask how you yeah. knew him, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. So I got a phone call from Bryce and when he said, oh, George, it's Bryce Courtney, I'm thinking, shit, how do I tell somebody like Bryce Courtney I've written a book? You're going to have the water, by the way. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Bryce rang me and I said, mate, I've written a book. Bryce says to me, George, to be honest with you, mate, he said, I've got to laugh at you. He said, the best thing I can tell you to do is throw it in the trash and go back to driving race cars what you do best. I go, all right. So that's that's awesome. Good start. <laughs> he said, so, yeah, nice chat. So anyway, he said to me, uh, look, he said, how long did it take you to write it? Now, I didn't know how long it should take to write a book. Had no idea. So I lied and I said, oh, six weeks? I'm thinking that took that was a long time, which is yeah. No, sorry. Six, six months. Took me six yeah. It took me six, six weeks, weeks to yeah. write it. But I knew I should take longer than six weeks. Yep. So I said six months and he just laughed. He said, George, it takes me two years to write a book. Yeah. He said, and uh, he said, look, the best thing you can do, he said, you can send it to me if you want and I'll have a bit of a look. He rang me back. I did that. And he said, George, I've got to tell you, he said, I've been, I've been teaching universities for 25 years. He says, taking me a long time to be able to tell somebody they're a natural. He said, and George, you're a natural. Mm. He said, the best thing I can tell you to do, he said, is forget about who's going to read it. Just write it the way you know that the story went. And he said, um, it needs to go to a big publisher, though. Try and get it to a big publishing company. So I went along to the, um, the Darling Harbour book fair was on at the time. So I just went along there. I looked for the biggest stand because I figured big stand, big publishing company, you <laughs> yeah. know. And I uh, wandered up and I said, look, who's the who's Ed Oncho? Who's the boss? And they said, oh, Lisa Hyden. She just happens to be here for an hour. I'll go and see her. And she'll say hello. Yeah. So I went up to her basically, well, are you busy? Have a read of this. And when you're ready to do something, give me a ring. Yeah. Because I figured that. I just thought, you know, if somebody writes something, yeah. somebody publishes it. Yeah. Not a chance. So she rang back a couple of weeks later and said, I want you to come in and have a meeting. I went in and uh, I figured I was going to go and sit in some little office above a 
fruit shop somewhere in Ryde. It's a <laughs> massive building, all glass and gold, you know. Yeah. Went in and there was about four or five people sitting there, some of the directors and, and Lisa. And uh, we talked probably for half an hour or so or an hour. She said, George, I've got to tell you, so I'm going to publish your book. And I said, oh, yeah, that's good. Anyway, we talked for a bit longer and she said, hold the meeting. She said, you have no idea, do you? And I said, what about? She said, normally when I tell somebody I'm going to publish their book, it takes me an hour to calm them down. She said, it is so difficult, right? Well, I wasn't excited because she didn't say she was going to sponsor me or anything. I would have yeah. got excited if she said yeah, that. Yeah, like, like, where's the money? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Show me the money. Um, so anyway, she, uh, yeah, then we just continued on after that. But there comes a time when you've got to own up. And I said to her, look, I said, I've got to be honest with you, I've got no idea how to write a book. I wouldn't have a clue. She said, I can get you a couple of um, a couple of authors that will help you. So I went and I met somebody here in Sydney. I met another guy in uh, in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I'm just going to end up with someone else's version of my book. You know. Yeah. So I went back and I seen her. I said, listen, if you want this to be a book, which isn't what I set out to do, I said, uh, I'm going to have to write it myself. She said, that's what I hoped you'd say. She said, I'll get you a good editor because I didn't, I had no idea how to make a paragraph or all them other little marks you have in yeah. there. So I left there. I went and bought four novels yep. so I could read through and try and figure out how to format it and how to make some, you know, some paragraphs and stuff like that. And, and basically that's what I did. Two fingers on typewriter. So I wrote two best-selling books with two fingers. That's yeah. amazing. Shit. Yeah. And, uh, but I set out, when I decided that I'd write the book, I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a trilogy because I've got that much stuff I can write about, so many incredible stories that I can write about. But I do have to change a lot because for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. you know, yep. I've got to distance myself from a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought I want to write the third one, but it's taken me now. I've just finished actually the second draft of the third book. I took the rights back from the first two. They asked me to write more books. But I said no because I wanted to write the crop. I wanted to make a movie. So I, I killed that idea. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to I'll go and make a movie, uh, which didn't make them all that happy, I would imagine. Uh, and I now understand why, how difficult it is to, you know, probably in hindsight, was it the right decision? I don't know. But I, you know what? I went on and did a lot of other things. So I guess it was. Mm. But yeah, so I decided that I wanted to write the third in the Jimmy Devlin series. Uh, which is basically the character that's just based around my life. But I had to wait a long time. It took me a long time because I needed a lot of people to die and uh, <laughs> hoping I wouldn't be one of them first. You know? yeah. oh, love that. Uh, but you've talked a lot about, we've seen it on, like from other interviews and that, about setting goals and that, and you talk about being in your comfort zone but not going to the danger zone. What's your advice for people for doing that? Because a lot of this, that's what you've done. You've dived into writing. You've dived into movies yeah. and race cars and that. And a lot of people, you know, it's natural. You get scared, should I do this and that? And you've just walking up to stands and saying, will you publish me, which is amazing. Yeah, I know. How do you balance that? Look, you know what? I came up with a theory a long time ago. I don't know that I came up with it. I probably stole it off somebody because I'm not that good at coming up theories but uh, and I'm not that clever. But... I believe that, you know what, and I drew a bunch of circles and if you've got a circle there which is your comfort zone, okay, and most people are happy in their comfort zone, they'll stay there. But if you want to expand and get rewards, you have to move into an area that it's not your comfort zone at all. I call it the danger zone, you Mm, know. But what you find is that that expands your comfort zone out to this much. So now all of a sudden you're out there and after a while your danger zone becomes your comfort zone. 
Mm. So your whole area of life is actually more comfortable, even though you're out there doing stuff that you can actually get great rewards from. So you can actually sit there if you want to, or you can expand it again and draw your circle a bit bigger. So before long, your comfort zone that's only this big, oops, yeah. sorry, becomes, <laughs> it's as big as uh, the microphone. <laughs> yeah, it becomes this big, you know, yeah. and and I, that's where the rewards are. There's there's very few rewards sitting in your comfort zone, and so I actually built a whole a whole speech around that, and and not that I've actually, I haven't actually pushed public speaking at all. It's just. There are some occasions where I've been asked and mainly by sponsors come along and speak to their people and I'm happy to do that. But, yeah, there's you know what, there's a big career in public speaking. I've just never pursued it because I've kind of been busy doing stuff I love doing, you know. <laughs> just need to straighten up the mic there. Yeah. yeah just, bring, just bring the mic back. Oh, bring it back. There we go. There we go. Sorry about that. No, no, you're good. <laughs> I'm good at wrecking stuff. Getting, yeah, we're getting excited. That's good. <laughs> That's all good. I was going to say about your commercial commercial pilot license and your hotel business. Yeah. Uh, first of all, where did the commercial pilot, like where did the, when did you decide to just like into – I needed, there was occasions where I really kind of needed to be able to fly choppers. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you read the books, you kind of, you, you get the sense for that. But, um, yeah, that was that was tough, let me tell you. With no education at all, I wanted to become a commercial jet helicopter pilot. And, again, I thought about Richard Branson. I thought, he built an aviation company. It can't be that hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So that's what I did. I set out, but I had to... Um, I remember my first uh, first day learning with my instructor and, I mean, he knew all about me. I, was, I had a pretty, um, I guess I was a bit of a hot shot race car driver in those days and yeah. might have been a little bit full of myself sitting in the, <laughs> sitting in the flight room just going, let's just get in the helicopter and go and do it, you know. Mm. And he's looking at me and said, George, he said, I've got to tell you something, mate. He said, I want you to understand this. He said, Helicopters are a lot different aeroplanes. He said, aeroplanes want to fly. By the sheer nature of an aeroplane, it wants to fly. A helicopter doesn't. All a helicopter wants to do is crash and kill you. And your job as a pilot is not to let it. So that kind of got my attention a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. And, uh, and that's where we went from. But you know what? I loved that. I loved doing the pilots. But then came the time to do all the theory stuff, uh, especially in jets and stuff like that. And I got presented with a you know, pile of books this high. I actually then had to employ a ground instructor to come and work with me four nights every night, six six nights a week. And I remember the first thing he did was put a big whiteboard up and write up all these equations and stuff. And I, I didn't have any idea what even that was. I said, mate, I've got no idea what that is. And he said, didn't you just do like mathematics and stuff like that? Still, not a chance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not a chance. So that was a tough call to do that. But, yeah, it was something I was pretty proud of, being able to pull it together. And apart from the other reasons or whatever reasons I needed to fly choppers, I started a uh, business out of Bankstown in um, basically in general aviation and, and in um, flying tourists up and down the the coast and doing stuff like that, which was great, until a pilot strike came along and all the international pilots went on strike, so there were no tourists. Uh, so I was kind of sitting there going broke again. Yeah. And uh, um, I decided to take on anything I could. And I remember, I'll never forget this guy. I'll, I'll, I'll probably show you a photo of it later. But a guy came along one day and he said to me, he said, mate, do you reckon you could fly a giant flag around underneath a helicopter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. These days that's been done quite a bit. But in yeah. those days it hadn't. And I knew he must have been everywhere else first and everywhere he'd said no. Everybody had said no because I was like new kid on the block. Yeah. So anyway, I said, yeah, I can do that. No worries, you know. He goes, okay. He said, I've got a job with Lotto. 
He said, and I want a big lotto flag. I said, all right. He said, what I'll do, he said, I'll go and have that. He said, how much are it going to cost? I said, um, I, I think the charter rate in them days was $600 an hour. So I said $1,200 an hour is about what I charge yeah. normally to do that thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. That was when I knew he'd been around because he accepted it. He said, that's okay, good. So anyway, off he went to have his giant flag made and I went off to find out, try and figure out how the hell I was going to fly it under helicopter. Mm-hmm. But I figured that if I got about 75 steel, foot of steel cable, clip that to the flag and put another 20 feet of cable underneath the flag with a big weight on it, that should do it, right? So I had the, uh, the cables, had everything ready. He turns up one day and we're going to do the uh, we're going to do a trial run. Mm. It was at Bankstown Airport. But he had a big trailer, big mound on it. Didn't look like any flag I'd ever seen, you know. Yeah. And he goes, oh, I had a great idea after I left you. I figured, you know what, rather than have a flag, let's have a giant lotto ball. Oh, no way. <laughs> and he starts way. blowing this thing up, and I kid you not, it was <laughs> as big as a three-storey building. Oh, wow. A massive, <laughs> massive ball, yeah. right? But I'm thinking of $1,200 an hour. I thought, yeah, we'll give it a go anyway. <laughs> you should have charged him more. <laughs> yeah. I picked the chopper up and I got it over the top and they clipped all the cables on, took it up in the end. You could only, uh, in, in the training area over there, couldn't go above 300 feet. Yeah. Now, hovering a chopper below 500 feet is probably one of the most dangerous things you can do because when if you get in trouble, you get out of control, you need airspeed. Okay. The only way you're going to get airspeed is to dive at the ground. Mm. And there's not a lot of time from 300 feet, right? Yeah. So I got this thing up. I took it up. I thought, oh, it kind of feels all right. Took it a little bit higher. Then it started to spin, mm. right? And I thought, no, that doesn't feel awesome. So I thought, I'll just go faster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I started to move off. Only got to about five knots. Now the thing starts not only spinning but doing this big pendulum. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, big pendulum movement, right, underneath yeah. the chopper. And before long, the helicopter's getting thrown all over the sky. I mean, I'm t- totally out of control. I'm at 300 feet in the air. The tower come on. They go, uh, we into your Quebec. What are your intentions? <laughs> I go, my intentions are to leave. <laughs> Without I jettisoned the thing. Yeah. And it's gone down, pulled down by the lead weight, right? But it's hit the ground, spread out like a big giant marshmallow. But then it's gathered itself back up again and come firing straight back up to the air. In the meantime, I'm diving at the ground to try and get airspeed. Yeah. I rolled oh. to the right to make sure it missed me. And I managed to fly out of the dive just before I hit the ground. The balls hit the ground and bounced all the way across the uh, the airfield and over a fence and into a school and rested against a um, portable school building thing, you know. Oh, yeah, one of that. Yeah. <laughs> so Holy I, shit. I just flew down and sort of parked the chopper, got in the car and went up. <laughs> <laughs> there were police and security guys everywhere. <laughs> uh, just left them to it. <laughs> so they'll figure oh, it out, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of different things like that. And, again, I had uh, great people working with me and we had a lot of fun uh, with the choppers. So, yeah, it was something different. And your hotel, when you bought that, you were saying in, in, on old interviews that back then, in Sydney, it wasn't. It was just in the bush, essentially, and then Sydney yeah. just and now Sydney gone. built around it. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, it was out at Leppington. Was was sort of if you put a pinpoint somewhere between Liverpool and Campbelltown and uh, and Penrith, we were about there. So it was no man's land, and uh, it was a pretty wild pub in those days. But I, I cleaned it all up and had the background to clean it up, so I cleaned it up and. Yeah. Um, it became a pretty good pub. It was it was a great pub actually. I loved it. I owned it for about twenty four years. 
And uh, yeah, it was it was a great uh, great lifestyle. But I had family that were able to look after the pub and run the pub while I was away doing lots of other things. So it kind of it was just a time in life where it worked. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of times in a lot of things in your life that work because of the timing mm-hmm. and things like that. If I bought, you know, I'd love to have another pub, but I would want that pub. Nowadays, pubs are just big. They're, they're big. Um, Big restaurants, basically. Yeah. You know, um, so a lot, much, much different to what I was used to in those days. Yeah. Now they're more rich. They're like a hotel type. Yeah, of, they are. Yeah. yeah. They're a hotel yeah. and a restaurant. And, you know, but when dinner time's over by nine o'clock, the pub's empty. So I don't know. When I look at the amount of money they're getting on some of these hotels, and I just figure this, I just don't know how they could ever recoup the money for it. You know, I mean, I could have mm-hmm. bought the Crossroads back when I sold Lockies. Uh, I think for twelve million, which was in two thousand and two. Yeah, I think or two. Yeah, maybe two thousand and two. And it just sold for one hundred and ninety-five million. Holy! I mean, yeah. You just can't. You, there's no way you can't make that sort of money out of a hotel. I think it's basically that it becomes a um, it becomes an item that is owned by you know, conglomerates or. Or whatever, and they hang on to it, and then eventually they'll probably sell it for two hundred and thirty million or something. Yeah, I think that's how they make their money back. Yeah, don't know. So but when you when you had the movie, because a lot of people are like, oh, ask George if any of the movie's true. <laughs> <laughs> so was it was like some of the stuff based from like around King's Cross? Is that where it was? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah a lot okay. Of it from there, yeah, yeah. And also the, uh, I mean, basically that's what happened when the um, when the breathalyzer was brought out. Yeah, I mean, I'd have um, probably three hundred people. In the pub on a on a Friday night, mm. and I think from memory it came in on the Thursday night. So Thursday over to the Friday, at two people, yeah. it was unbelievable. It oh, wow. killed hotels like wow. you wouldn't believe. So it was a struggle, and um, but I knew a lot of the flower growers being in that area. Mm. A lot of the flower growers were mar- they were growing marijuana crops. Yeah. Cops were involved in it. They were given a protection. Then they'd tell them, rip it all out because we're going to have a big bust and some didn't, some did. Yeah. So I kind of had all the, the – uh, when I say it's a true story, no, it's not. Mm. I didn't run off and plant marijuana. No, no. I knew yeah. a lot of people that did that sort of thing and, and that's what gave me the idea of it. And also the red light camera idea in it came from that time when red light cameras first came out, you know. So yeah. it was a, it was a great story to put it all together and a lot of the characters are based on real characters and, yeah, yeah it was interesting. But it, you know what, the, the crop for me was a giggle. It, yeah. It's great and I just hope that anybody that watches it, which appears to be the case, people who don't, you know, read the slanderous remarks that I copped yeah. from uh, from within the industry, uh, actually watch the movie and love it and they, and they all go, oh, it was so fun. It was all just right. a fun flick. I think that's what that's people got to know for any movie. Like we see stuff now coming out on Netflix and they'll be like, this is the latest thing and you'll see the reviews come out and they're like four out of ten. And I'm like, well, let's watch this and find out. And you'll watch it and be like, that was, to me, I'd give it at least a six or a seven out of ten. Yeah, it might have not been some movies I've yeah. seen the best thing, but it wasn't bad. And I was like, and it's, I don't know, I think they're getting pickier and pickier because there's so much on Netflix, Stan, this, so Disney choice, and that yeah. choice that people can get yeah. quite like, I don't mm. know, sometimes they give these, you know, some 
places, like you said, like the gold, like, you know, your Golden Globes and all that sort of stuff. It's friends of friends and whoever's going to get it. Cause you see some of these ratings, 10 out of 10. I'm like, that was not 10 out of 10, but <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, it's. <laughs> well, what I'm it's wondering, like, George, is your movie. It's only on Apple. Are you going to also, you know, you said you're putting your, your books back out there. Are you yeah. going to try and move it, move the movie more on other apps, yeah, like will, even Prime yeah. Video, for example. Yeah, do you know what I'm I mean? going to try to do that. We've got the focus is now to get my third book out, which as I said, completes the trilogy. And then I want to have like a basically a George Elliott entertainment pack, you know, yeah. so we'll get it out there onto different for, formats. Yeah. And at the time I did all that sort of stuff, we didn't have that opportunity. Like I said, you know, you didn't have the um, the the uh, outlets to be able to get it onto and you were just at everybody else's mercy, you know, like that. Yeah. And if you think about it, the way it was explained to me is that all the power – is in the people that can release it. So they're the ones that are going to make the money and they protect that. You know, people like that want to write a, write a film or, you know, come up with a good storyline. There's, there's, there's thousands in, and again, come to the circle thing, thousands in this big balloon, right? But then you've got to get somebody to actually make it. Well, now there's only this many people that actually make it, unless you do what I did and just basically went ahead because I wasn't smart enough to realise you shouldn't be able to do that. You know? yeah. uh, but when it comes time to releasing it, then it's only this big. There's yeah. only a very, very small amount of people that will actually put it out there on film. And they're the ones that protect everything and they don't want people like me coming along and being successful. They want to make sure they keep it all in-house. You yeah. know? And Look, I guess that's yeah, that's just the way it is. And as I say, I've got no regrets over it. I did, uh, you know, I did okay out of it, and uh, it was just a great time in my life. Something that was a something that I got incredible pleasure out of doing, and and met a lot of fantastic people. So it was great. Did yeah. you learn your Did you learn your acting gig from McDonald's ad? Because <laughs> that was you know what I tried to get. I tried to do acting lessons, and in the end, I just said, you know what, just let me be myself. I don't want to do that. Just, yeah. just let me be me, and we'll we'll get through it all right. Uh, the McDonald's thing was. Um, yeah, that that was that was a bit of fun too, and that came about purely by accident and through racing yeah. because um, Shell asked me to do an ad, which didn't get a lot of publicity. It did go out. There was um, it got a few, but then there was an agent that actually saw the Shell commercial, and they rang and asked me was I interested in doing one for McDonald's, and I said yeah that'll be cool. So I did the McDonald's commercial, but that got heaps of play, like tons, to a point where. I couldn't walk into a cafe or a restaurant where everybody was looking at me and I kind of – I didn't actually like it that much. You know? <laughs> yeah. I wasn't real keen on that. Yeah. And I got asked to do a few others, which I I just decided not to do. I just said, no, no, I've done enough of that. I'll do something else, you know. I was looking at the burgers on that ad. I was like, Macca's does not look like yeah. these days. No, like no, it looked no, look look like a legit look. Looked like a legit yeah. burger that you were eating back then. It was though. funny, like, mate. It was a legit bur- uh, burger, but what they had was a big wooden uh, cardboard box sitting beside me. So I'd take one bite out, and then I'd have to spit it out and throw that one away, and then get another one because, as you know, they do so many takes. Yeah. You know? But yeah, that was a that was a fun thing to do, and I, I did. I got a lot of fun out of it, and you know, a lot of notoriety, I guess. <laughs> It's funny how things, people remember. I get amazed at the amount of people that even remember who I am, to be honest. I get a bit blown away, you know, like even to be asked to come in here and do this. I feel I feel pretty honoured that you guys would put yourself out to actually ask me to come along. In fact, I think the first time when you asked me, I think I said to you, mate, this, 
A lot more interesting people than yeah, me. Why no, would you yeah. want to talk to me? Yeah. So we're excited that you're here. That's yeah. the thing. Like for us, it's like, well, we're like going through everything, you know. We knew what you'd done, but then researching it more and more, and it's just you've had an incredible life. Yeah, like, it's and never everything. been dull. Yeah. yeah, and people want to hear that because you're coming from a background as well. You're not your story is like amazing, but you're not making it impossible. So some of us yeah. see like the Lewis Hamiltons and people go, how the hell? Or you see some people that came from a hundred million dollar family. You've yeah. made it. And you've also walked into industries where you've just pushed down doors. What is your advice for people? You've come from like having so many naysayers and saying, you can't write a book because you're not from the background, a movie or even drive a car. What do you say to others like to change that narrative and just walk through? I guess the first thing I say is don't uh, don't listen to the dream stealers because there's plenty of them out there, and then believe in yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's as I said when we talk about driving out onto the racetrack, you got to believe in your own heart that you're the best there is, and um, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. You know, so that's that's probably the most important thing, and um, but that that's not as easy as as it sounds to be honest. Because there are a lot of knockers, there's a lot of people that will continually tell you you can't do this and you can't do that. You can do anything you want to do. You just got to want it bad enough. Mm. And I really believe that. You know, I, I just believe and and have proved it over and over again that if you decide that you really want to do something, if you want it bad enough, you'll make it happen. Yeah. See, so, I, I had this idea for the podcast where, where I wanted to invite guys like yourself on and I, people were just like, oh, yeah, just do it via Zoom and do it by this. And I was like, no, I had this like a legit plan. Have the couch that you're sitting on, George, yeah. doing it this way, having your monitor there, having yeah. a producer that gets involved. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, good for you because yeah. I think it's a great thing to do. I hated you about an hour ago, by the way, because the traffic was a nightmare. Uh, but, um, but no, but I understood that, you know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. I, I thought, you know, well, this is where uh, – where you're coming from. I understood what it is that you're trying to build and what you're trying to do. And I'm happy to be able to be able to contribute to that in some way. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately it was just it was just difficult and a difficult time a year, I guess, just trying to find the time to do it. Mm. And uh as I said, I was becoming really, really worried that you might think, oh, I'm just, you know, I feel like I'm taking the piss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need to do that. But that wasn't the case at all. I'm, I'm like just just got so much going on, but it's funny how um, you know it's funny how different people take different rewards from from things they do too. Yeah. I can see that both you guys are getting great rewards out of being able to sit here and talk to people and then be able to get it out there for people to understand. And people are going to remember that; they'll remember it for everything. I mean, I'm blown away at the amount of people that come to me every day. Okay, George, remember this or you remember that? There are so many people out there that know more about me than I know. You know, <laughs> I've forgotten most of the stuff, you know. Yeah. In fact, I got on an aeroplane not long ago and we talk about the, the guy that first sponsored me in the Mini. Um, I was on a flight, it was to Perth actually, on a flight to Perth and the uh, the head steward came down and he knelt down beside my seat and he goes, are you George Elliott? And I go... Who wants to know? You know? <laughs> I go, yeah, that's right. He said, the NASCAR driver. I said, yeah. He goes, do you remember the Mini that you used to race at a Maddo service centre? I said, yeah, of course I do. I remember it really, really well. He said, um, do you remember there was a little blonde-headed kid that used to follow you everywhere with stars in his eyes just looking at you? I said, yeah, I remember that kid, Yeah. He said, that little kid was me. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he said, my yeah. name's Rhett Scullion. And um, 
you know, when things like that happen to you, you it makes you just have a real good think about the effect you've had on people's lives, you know, and I love to, I love to think that I've had positive effect on a lot of people's lives. And I, I do get that. There's a lot of guys, you know, that are out there racing today that will openly say, man, I'm doing this because of you. That's pretty cool, you know. So it's not always about the money. You no, know? no. And that's what I think. You're also with your business giving like guys like myself and other drivers a go, which yep. is what Richard, which is what Luffy said to me on the phone, mm. just to see how far you can go with the business. It's not like a yep. full-time business, but it's yeah, to sure. see what will happen. Yeah, you know I mean? absolutely. Like you brought Joey in, you brought me in, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like you're bringing in like the NASCAR type of feeling <laughs> to because, you know, you've got drivers, oh, yeah, I know, I've seen that driver. Or yeah. What's the feeling though when you get – like as you said, like I don't know, four hundred people turn up a day, and some some might even know a race car, like not even know who a race car yeah. driver is. No, do they don't. I mean? they, they haven't got a clue. The, the the good thing about that is when you see people go from being so nervous they can hardly get in the car to getting out at the end of their uh, their session mm. with the biggest smile you've ever seen in your life, like, and really feeling wow, so pumped they've achieved something that they never believed they could achieve. They've gone faster than they could ever, ever imagine they'd be able to go. Mm. And, you know, you send them away with a real good feel, not only the fact that they've just done something and had a bit of fun, but a feeling of um, accomplishment for themselves, yeah. you know. And I think that's that's a great thing to do. It's, um, yeah, it's a funny thing with race cars. You can actually push people real hard beyond what they ever imagined they, they thought they would be able to do. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a way to obviously training people out there like myself who's going out there today for the first ever time yep. Yep. to just get someone that you don't know to just focus. Because you said yeah. at the start of the podcast, by the end of the day, you've got to be be like you were at the start of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, that, yeah. and it's not easy to do that because they are, they are tough days. And as I said, uh, <laughs> I often laugh, thinking, you know what, okay, I'm, you know, I'm now as I'm a professional hot lap driver. That's all I do is I drive full noise all day. Uh, sometimes seven or eight hours in the car. So I've got to be really mindful that I'm taking somebody for a ride at the end of the day and they deserve to have the best ride I can give them. Mm. No matter how tired I am or how worn out I am, um, we often laugh and think, you know, everybody wants to be a hot lap driver until they become a hot lap driver and yeah. <laughs> realise how hard it is, you know. Yeah. But uh, it's it's great to... Um, it's great to be have that be able to have that gift of being able to give back to people. You know, I yeah. love that. Yeah, that's why I kind of also created the podcast just to yeah. give, like show people's lives, which is what you said about, which is great about the yep. show. I guess it shows people mm. more behind the helmet. You know, stories yeah, behind the absolutely. helmet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's there's so much more. I mean, as I say, I know we're we're on limited time here today. We could but we could sit here for the oh. three days, mate. You know, yeah, we're about to we're about to wrap up as you said. Yeah, that, cool. So. No worries. Well, so. Let's, I don't know if you've listened to a few shows already, George, but we have the show called The Fast Five, similar to what you've had actually produced in one of your ads for yep. similar name, actually, yeah. The Fast yeah. Five. It's five questions. It's not – you don't have to rambly ramp, run through them. It's just – it's an A, B, C, D scenario now. Brooks actually – Brooks actually – Some of them are. I think one, one, one of them is – Do I get the, the, the phone a friend or is it <laughs> – <laughs> we, we could bring that in in season three if you want. Um, but, yeah, the fast five is pretty, pretty much a fast five question. Um, if you get – what is it, Brooke? What's the – Three out of five. Three out of five. You get yep. three out of five, you get a prize. 
Three out of five. And then and then if you get zero to correct, you get to take me to Eastern Creek and just hear me talk shit. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to Eastern Creek. Fire away, bro. All right. Do you want me to do the first one? You can one? do the first one. All right. One. Some of these are going to be from, you know, from the movie side and some from NASCAR. So okay. The first one we've got is which book uh, was not written by Bryce Courtney? <laughs> Which book was not, not written, written by Bryce Courtney? Was written by Bryce Courtney? Was not, not written. Oh, was not written. So, so what did he not write? Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got four choices here. Was it A, The Power of One, B, The Persimmon Tree, C, Ice Station, or D, Jessica? I'd say probably Ice Station, but I don't yes. really know. Yes. That's correct. That's That's, correct. That was written by Matthew Riley. Clever me. There okay. we go. All right. And number two is at the last ever Thunderdome meeting, two more NASCAR events were held in Australia. Where were these events held at? Uh, one was at, uh, in Adelaide at the um, at Malala. Yep. I know because I won. Yep. And there was one in Queensland Raceway. Yep. That's what, I, that's what I said. Yeah, it's it's like, Brooks, Brooks researched it. See, I re- <laughs> researched this and got to. Uh, I got yeah. There was the other one that was in Perth or WA. Yeah, Perth. They said. I was in. Yep. I, raced, yeah. I raced there too. Yeah, yep. and the Australian Grand Prix and yep. the Australian Grand Prix. Yeah, yep. and also um, you can, you can go the Gold Coast. I mean, there's there's a number of them. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the after the NASCAR sanction. It just went. What did it go into? Was it the power? power? Yeah, it was the power tour. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In fact, Barry Blake put on a um, the 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 show in Perth, mm. which is where I killed the best, the biggest, <laughs> biggest brown snake I've ever seen in my life. I come hurtling around to, to go up the hill there, and there was a big king brown right on the middle of the racetrack <laughs> with its head up like that, yeah. ready for attack. Yeah, whash! <laughs> I had no, there was yeah. nowhere else I could go, and I'm all the way around for the rest of that uh, that lap. I'm looking at me feet, thinking, "Oh, I didn't like that." <laughs> Is this why the Browns show up so much in the movie? Yeah, yeah. yeah I've got a fear of snakes. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, that's one of your fears. There yeah. you go. <laughs> so what's that? That's two out of two. That's yep, yep. Two out of two. That? There you go, Brooke. You can go to this one. All right. Which Australian actor played Lieutenant Colonel Clark Marshall in the recently released Netflix movie Interceptor? So was it A, Ryan Quanton, B, Chris Hemsworth, C, Patrick Brammel, or D, Reese Muldoon? I haven't got a clue, but I'd say it's Patrick. Is it Patrick? Reese. It was Reese, was it? Yeah. I'd like to think I gave him his start in that too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, pretty much why we brought it up. All right, the next one, back to a racing question. George, what America circuit did your former teammate Nathan Hearn recently complete at earlier this year? Was it A, Laguna Seca, B, Cota, C, Watkins Glen, or D, Daytona International Speedway? Oh, my God, are you pushing it? Mm. (laughs) I don't know. It may have been... uh... In Trans Am. So you race in Trans Am overseas this year. Yeah. Was it Daytona? I don't know. It was Cota. It was Cota. Well, Circus just, of America. I was going to say Cota, yeah. but then I thought, oh, did they go to the flat track? Because I know they're running a flat track down at Daytona. It was Cota. So wait, Brooke, is this an equal? This is the so not this, this, well, this question is your decider. This is your decider. This is the decider. Here we go. I told you it wasn't that smart. <laughs> you've done Doing well. Pl- you've done plenty of laps around Bathurst recent, recently, so yep. you should be able to get this one, hopefully. <laughs> what is the approximate length of the Bathurst racetrack? Is it A, 4.8? Kilometers. 4.8 kilometers, yeah. Yeah. B, 5.9. C, 6.2. Or D, 8.3. 6.2, I think it is. Oh, bingo. Bingo. There we go. George, you get a fast five prize. <laughs> there you go. What have you got, Dan? <laughs> well, it's 
sneaking behind his desk to find. Yeah, I know. It's I'm scary. Running, I'm running low on presents because I've done so many podcasts with <laughs> Presley. So I'm going to give you thro- give you two. One is a stress ball dog. Right. That might be good because you're always on the road and you might <laughs> deal, with, deal with traffic. And then the other one is a TV and movies quiz. Which TV is, and movies quiz. quiz that could, is, yeah, that might be a bit of fun. I'll which, go that, that one's good fun. It's got all even up from the old stuff to the later stuff. We yeah. had fun, yeah. And I thought because I connected with some of your family on Facebook recently, you know, over the Christmas holidays you can, you know, play that with them. Yep, so, that sounds like a lot of fun. I might learn something anyway. Yeah, there you go. So, George, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and after this we'll be obviously heading out to Eastern Creek together yeah. and – I'm pumped, and no. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into another episode later on when when we reach over 100 episodes. You can bring some other guests in. So, uh, guys, look, you know what? I appreciate you asking me to come along, and um, you know, like always, there's I always believe there's a lot more talent out there in the stands than there is in the race cars. So let's go see what we can do. Eh? Sounds good. Cheers, Thank George. You. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of On the Couch with Hooli. Make sure to subscribe to our show so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And to help us grow, please leave a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. For extra content, check out our YouTube and social channels. You can find all the links in the show notes. See you next week.